Greetings, and welcome to Mind Matters News. Animals are capable of incredibly impressive and clever feats, from birds migrating across the world to insects building massive, complex homes. To talk about these and many other examples, today we're joined by Eric Castle, author of the book Animal Algorithms. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Marks. Greetings, I am your bearded host for this episode, Robert J. Marks. Today we talk about algorithms, and specifically algorithms embedded in animals. An algorithm is a step-by-step procedure to do some task. I have a recipe from my grandfather on making what he called swankum, and all recipes are examples of algorithms. Swankum was a dessert made from old, hard, cold biscuits that they used during the Depression. Here's the recipe. First, you break the biscuit in a bowl. You cover the biscuit with two dollops of applesauce and three teaspoons of sugar. You pour in some fresh cold milk, add a dash of vanilla abstract, and you have the equivalent of a poor man's apple pie. So this recipe for Swankum is an algorithm. It follows a preset list of instructions. Uh, Algorithms are also in Google Maps. If you go to Google Maps, it gives you directions. Those directions form an algorithm. You're given a sequence of instructions like go six miles south on I-35, takes exit 32A, turn right, et cetera, et cetera. These directions are themselves an algorithm. And very importantly, very significantly, every computer program ever written follows an algorithm. Well, here's what we're going to talk about today. Astonishingly, animals are born knowing remarkable algorithms. What are some of these algorithms? And more interestingly, where do they come from? Our guest today, Eric Castle, has written a book entitled Animal Algorithms. It's a fun read. Uh, I endorse the book. It's easily understood. And I tell you, I learned tons about animal behavior from the book. It was really fascinating. The author, Eric Castle, has a degree in biology from George Mason University, a degree in electrical engineering from Villanova, and a degree in science and religion from Biola University. Maybe he's trying to get more degrees than a compass, <laughs> but these are these are very very important prestigious degrees. He has he has been an engineering consultant for the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, and also for NASA. And he has over forty years of experience in various aspects of systems engineering related to aircraft navigation, air, air traffic control, surveillance, and safety systems. And you notice the first thing I mentioned on here was aircraft navigation, and some of his expertise in navigation it proves useful in this book. How, how do how do animals navigate? Eric is a technical expert in various aspects of global positioning systems, GPS, which I use every other day. And his interest in animals resulted in the book that we're going to talk about: Animal Algorithms, published by Discovery Press. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Eric, welcome. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate that very much. And I'm really happy to be here and honored that, uh, to be interviewed by you. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm honored to interview you. So we have a mutual admiration society going on here. Let, let's go back to the fossil record, uh, Eric. How, you know, how did you, with your, with your background in engineering, I guess you do have a background in biology, but how did you become interesting in this, uh, in this topic of animal algorithms? Well, it first started um, actually before I became um, more involved with biology. My, my career, I started out in engineering and uh, early in my career, I 
started working on aircraft navigation systems. That was my primary field and ha actually has continued for all this time for the most part. After I'd been working in that field for a number of years, I uh, just happened to read some articles uh, about bird navigation. And what fascinated me was several things related to that that really impressed me about the, the way that birds navigate so accurately. Because some of the birds do some amazing long-distance navigation. For example, Arctic terns migrate between the, basically the North Pole to the South Pole uh, annually. And there's a number of other birds that uh, do similar types of long-range navigation. And so after um, reading about that, I, I started to think, well, how do they do that? How are they able to, to navigate so accurately? In many cases, birds are able to navigate back to very precisely to, a, to the same local area each year uh, in their annual migration. And then uh, uh, as I started to read a little bit more about it, um, it turns out that not just those kinds of birds, but other birds that are able to navigate to other areas that where they, they net will nest in, in a specific air region uh, every year. And so the question that uh, occurred to me was, how are they doing that? What's the mechanism? And at that time, this was again quite some time ago, although there was some, a lot of information in the research about the navigation and migration that these birds do, very little was known about exactly how they do it. And so that's what the, uh, initially piqued my interest in this. And then as time went on, I became more interested and started to try to learn a lot more about it. Okay, you mentioned the idea of a magnetic compass. What's going on here? I read somewhere, Eric, that if you take a homing pigeon, which they use for communications, I think in World War I and World War II, and you tied a small magnet around their necks, that they couldn't, they couldn't go home. It confused them. So what's going on with this magnetic compass? Right. So um, in the case of the magnetic compass, that was actually the, the first sort of ma um, navigation sensor, if you will, that uh, scientists uh, had determined that a number of animals were using, um, including pigeons. And uh, that was the kind of experiment you're talking about. That was one way that they determined that they were actually using the Earth's magnetic field as a, as a source of, um, of a navigation sensor. And it turns out that actually pigeons use more than that, but that's, that's one of the methods that they use. And so um, in the early days of uh, scientists doing research into this, that was the primary focus. And um, as they did more research, they found out, well, in fact, it's way more complicated than that. Um, and as time has gone on, they've determined that there's a number of other navigation sensors and navigation sensor information that various animals use. And um, to make it more complicated than just the, the sensor type, one of the things that I think is underappreciated, even with the magnetic compass, is that it's not just a matter of determining north and south. So in other words, the magnetic compass does give you 
fairly accurate uh, direction in terms of north and south, although it's not perfect. You know, the, the magnetic north actually moves around over time, uh, so it, it does drift, and so that does affect the accuracy of it. But the other aspect that I think gets overlooked quite a bit is these animals don't just simply move north and south. So in other words, yeah, we tend to think of, like, for example, migrating birds. In, in many instances, uh, they'll move, they'll migrate between north and south, like uh, a lot of the birds the migratory birds in North America will, will migrate between North America and South America. So in general, it is kind of a North and South movement, but that is not always the case. There, is a, there are a lot, number of birds that migrate uh, in different directions and in fact follow multiple complex routes on their, on their migration paths. So um, again, it's, it's more complicated than just Knowing north and south, the question then is, okay, if they if they the goal is to migrate, let's just use an example. They need to fly to, to the southwest. Well, how do they do that? It's not if you know north and south, that's one thing. How do they know how to fly in the southwesterly direction? So that 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 involves two things. First thing is knowing what is the goal. Where, where are you trying to fly to? Now, why, Eric, why, why would they travel in the southwestern? Oh, because that's their destination, I guess, right? Well, yeah. For example, there's some birds, uh, and actually um, monarch butterflies are a good example of this, where um, one population of monarchs uh, migrate between uh, sort of eastern Canada and uh, a certain region in Mexico. So that's basically a, a migrating from southwest and then back to northeast. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. So um, the the then the other problem then is how are they computing that? Okay, you might know you want to fly southwest. There they have to have a mechanism or an algorithm to actually compute that southwesterly direction and follow that path. So it's even a what you tend to think of as a fairly simple migratory path is actually a little bit complicated and it does involve some mathematics. Yeah. You mentioned in your book that they literally use spherical trigonometry, essentially that, that, that was astonishing to me. Yeah. Well, that, that's where, that's where we're getting into much more sophisticated mathematics that in the algorithms that some of these animals use. Um, so, um, this is a little hard to talk about in an audio presentation. If we had a vi- visual, it would be easier to illustrate. But one way to think about it, and the term that's, uh, that I'm talking about is when animals fly what we call great circle routes. These are the routes, um, that's a term actually that came out of aircraft navigation when um, aircraft started flying long distance flights between different continents. And so uh, an easy way to think about it is um, if if an aircraft was flying from, let's say, New York to Tokyo, they're on generally about the same latitude. And if you looked at on a uh, locations of those two cities on a map, on a flat map, you would think the shortest route would be flying directly west from New York to Tokyo. But in fact, that's not the case when you look at it on, on a globe. 
turns out the shortest route is flying over, almost over the North Pole. Those routes go uh, well northern into Canada. So that's what we call a great circle route. And it turns out there's a number of these birds that do these long distance migrations that actually do follow great circle routes. And the way that you have to compute that, at least the way we do it in our aircraft navigation systems, there's spherical uh, geometry involved. So that's a complex mathematical calculation to be able to compute and follow such a route. Now, we don't know how animals do this. It's, it's likely that they're using some sort of a, uh, a shortcut rather than some sophisticated mathematics, but we, have, we have really have no clue as to how they do that. You also mentioned in your book about other cues that um, birds, and you talked about the monarch butterfly that insects use for navigation. Um, I thought this was very interesting that not only the magnetic sensor was used, but, but other things were used. Could you talk to that? Yeah, exactly. As the research has continued over the years, and, and there's been quite a bit of research into this probably over the last 30 to 40 years, um, we're, we're, they're finding more and more about a number of different uh, navigation cues that animals use. In addition to the magnetism, one is the sun compass, where they can they can um, navigate using the position of the sun. Uh, the one that's really interesting is where they use not just the sun directly, but the the polarization of the, uh, the sun's rays, um, which comes in very handy on, for example, cloudy days where you can't see the sun directly, but uh, there is a, a, a way of using the the way the sun refracts through the atmosphere and determining the polarization and then thereby determining the, the location of the sun. That is also a really sophisticated, um, complex mechanism to think about that. If, again, this is something hard to picture on an audio um, presentation. There's a, actually a diagram in the book that tries to explain it, but it took me a while, <laughs> a while just looking at how that was done and, and trying to understand it. So again, that's another thing. It's a mystery as to how animals actually do that. There's other types of sensors. Uh, some animals, uh, particularly some birds, use celestial navigation where they can actually determine the, uh, use the stars. So for example, in the case uh, of the pole star, that's a approximate indication of, of north. Some birds use that to navigate. Another one that's really interesting is um, uh, determination of distance. Some animals are actually able to integrate a mechanism that would be the equivalent of an odometer, where they're able to determine the distance that they've traveled. I'll get a little bit more into that one uh, a little later as well. The other um, method that uh, is really fascinating is um, one that's not just using the sensor information directly, but there are other methods that animals use where they integrate this information. There's a technique that the, the, the animal behaviorists call path integration, which is 
for those familiar with uh, the early days of ship navigation, there was a method called dead reckoning, where uh, the ancient mariners would use a, a technique to determine the distance that the uh, ship has traveled, and and as well as trying to uh, estimate the um, angular path. In other words, was it traveling east, west, north, etc. That that was an, the earliest method of longer distance navigation, primarily with ships. And there's a sort of a version of that that some animals use. Again, they call path integration where they're actually able to keep track of the distance that they've traveled, as well as the uh, angular path, in other words, again, traveling east or north, et cetera. And then what, what they are able to do with that information is, as if they're traveling outbound, for example, they're out foraging or traveling to uh, a, a location for a new nest or something like that, and then they need, need to be able to return to their home nest they use this information during the outbound part of the journey. And even if it's a complex path, in other words, they keep turning, traveling different distances and directions, at the end of the journey and before they return home, this mechanism is able to actually give them the shortest distance route back to their home nest, mm. which is amazing. And again, that involves some complex mathematical calculations in order to do that. All of these results are just astonishing. And the thing that's astonishing, and we'll talk about this later, is that these animals are born with these algorithms already embedded inside their brains or whatever, whatever they use to perform these operations. It also strikes me um, that um, my, my grandfather, the one that invented Swankman had a third grade education, uh, said that there's very little that man or nothing, he said nothing, that man ever creates that wasn't done first by God in creation. And I was going down the list that you have here, you know, the sun compass, the magnetic compass, celestial, uh, the path integration that you talked about, all of these have been discovered and used by navigators, human navigators. And so we've discovered these things that were already embedded in nature. The one I don't think we've ever used is sun polarization, which is which is fascinating. I I wonder how useful that that would be. Well, actually, if I inter can interrupt you there for a second, um, it turns out there's a theory that that w has been used. Really? Yeah. The the the, the Vikings used a, a device called a sunstone. That's, that's documented in the, in the Viking literature. It, there's an indication that it was used for navigation. The theory is, and there's not a lot of really good direct evidence for it, but there's a lot of information that indicates what the Vikings were doing was using a, a certain uh, types of stone that have uh, uh, specific kinds of crystals in them. Oh. And, we, and we do know now that these crystals can be used to um, sort of mimic the indication of the polarized light from the sun. In other words, what we think animals use. So if you hold the, the on a cloudy day, you can hold these, these stone crystals up. And when you look at it and you can, you're able to actually determine the polarization of the sun and therefore infer the, the direction of the sun. So that, that's been proven. And the speculation is that the Vikings, when they 
when they went on these long distance routes um, from Scandinavia to Iceland and North America that they were actually using the sunstone as part of their navigation tool. That is, that is just fascinating. I, I know that we use polarization when we go to the theater and we get these dark glasses. They 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 do the polarization. Um, you can get anti-polarization lenses in your glass in your glasses, so you don't see the glares off of it. Right in the sun in sunglasses, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the the fact that polarization was used for navigation, uh, wow, that, that that's really interesting, both in insects and by the Vikings. You know, in the book, you talk about these animal navigation systems, and you talk about how they're engineered. Um, both you and I have backgrounds in engineering, uh, so I think it'll be fun to talk about some of these examples of engineering of these navigation systems. Could you talk to that? Sure, and um, I'll use an example, what I think is a, a really interesting and fascinating example of it. There's an, a species of ant called the desert ant, um, uh, as the name implies, they, they reside in, in the desert areas, and the, the particular species that's been um, investigated quite a bit is, is a certain species that resides in Africa. This, this particular desert ant actually has multiple navigation sensors, and it, it, it employs many of the ones we just talked about. It, it uses the uh, polarized light from the sun, the sun compass, it does use landmark nav navigation as well. Uh, it uses an odometer that I mentioned, uh, and I'll describe that in a little bit more in a second. And it also uses chemotaxis. In other words, it uses um, sensing the chemicals to, to, to search for food or its home nest, things like that. One, one, one part of this that's really interesting is the odometer. Um, and there was an, an interesting experiment done to prove this, where um, the, um, the, the scientists doing the research, they were able to modify the, the legs on these ants. And they called them stilts and stumps, where what they did was um, they either added stilt or you know, added to the length of their legs, or in the other part of the experiment, they actually cut down the lengths of their legs. And the outcome of the experiment was that they were actually to prove that what the ants are doing is they're actually counting their steps when they, when they travel away from the nest. And they use that to, as an odometer. And it's just unbelievable that an ant is able to do that. It's actually counting its steps and then that becomes part of it, this path integration method where ah. when, it, when you combine the odometer with the angle or the path that's being traveled, again, north or east, et cetera, using these other companies. So, so that's, that's an example of path integration that we use. I've seen a lot of people, for example, people that do construction, marking off distances by taking a step and saying each step is equal to three feet or something like that. And they take a number of steps and they add them up. And that's, that's how long they've gone. So they, they, these ants use a similar thing. That's path integration, right? Uh, yeah. When you combine it with the, the angular path, right? So you have to know, okay, am I which, what direction am I traveling? And then what the ants are doing again is 
at the end of their journey, if they've been out foraging, or, or for example, and they need to return to their home nest, they use that all that all that information has been stored and integrated, and then they compute the direct path back to the nest. <laughs> it, to me, it's just unbelievable that an ant is able to do such a thing. So this, to me, uh, then, oh, by the way, one other aspect of this that indicates engineering is it's not just the fact that they have multiple sensors and integrate this information. Part of the process, uh, control process, is that they're able to select the optimal navigation source during that particular journey. In other words, if it's cloudy, they'll use the polarized light compass. If it's sunny, they just use a normal sun compass. In other conditions, they'll use landmarks. And that if this is all programmed into the ant to select the best method. That is astonishing. We, I'm working on a project now where a system has a number of different potential ways of doing things. And then there is a system that analyzes all these systems and says, which one is the, uh, which is the best one. It sounds exactly, that's exactly what these ants are doing. That's, that's really frankly astonishing. You know, you have a background in aircraft navigation and I'm wondering what your opinion is about the comparison of these algorithms to the way that, animals navigate. Yeah, I think there's a, a direct uh, analogy uh, and comparison with, for example, what, this, what these desert ants do with modern aircraft navigation systems. Modern aircraft use a number of different uh, sensors for navigation. Initially, uh, the first ones were based on uh, ground-based radio uh, systems where um, there would be, there's transmitters on the ground and aircraft use the information from these transmitters to, to estimate their position. When aircraft started doing more long-range navigation, particularly across the oceans, they obviously could not use these ground-based radio systems because they don't have uh, over-the-horizon capability. So then they figured, figured out, okay, what's the best way to, <clears throat> for an aircraft to determine its position when it's out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, for example? Well, they developed a, what, what's called an inertial system where um, the, these devices actually measure the aircraft's movement during its flight. In other words, it's able to determine when it turns or banks, accelerates, decelerates, et cetera. Um, all those, any movement of the aircraft is, is captured by these inertial systems and they use that to actually determine how far and in what direction the aircraft has traveled. Um, and so that's actually very similar to these, these path integration systems that are used by some animals like the desert ant. Um, and then more recently, the course GPS has really revolutionized aircraft navigation because oh, yeah. it's by far the most accurate system that's ever been developed um, and has become nearly universally used uh, by aircraft. And of course, like you mentioned, we use it in our cars. We have it in, in most cell phones now. So you're able to just determine where you are pretty accurately. The, 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 the analogy uh, between the, the man-made systems and um, some of the animals is um, the fact that 
aircraft systems, again, use multiple sensors and integrate that information and uh, are able to actually, the way they're programmed today is they're actually able to select the, the optimum source for the navigation information, again, depending upon certain conditions. Uh, so that's all automatically done. And then the other part of it that is, again, analogous is these are actually backup sensors. So in other words, if one, in the aircraft design, if one sensor fails for some reason, uh, there's always a backup to switch to. And the same applies, again, to animals like the desert ant because they have multiple uh, navigation sensors. If one of them is not usable, it simply switches to another one. Again, directly analogous to aircraft systems. Another aspect uh, is the fact that when you build a complex system like that, and these aircraft navigation systems today are highly complex um, with basically millions of lines of code are required to program these systems. And all that information has to be integrated and it has to be coherent. So uh, to, for the optimum performance, you have to design engineering the system to work that way. The same is true for these systems in, for example, a, an ant, that these systems are actually integrated and optimized in a complex manner. So that's a, a pretty good indication of the engineering involved in, in an animal system. That is astonishing. You know, wh one of the astonishing things about all everything that you're talking about is that these animals are born with all of these algorithms already embedded. It occurred to me that humans have some algorithms embedded in them also. I know when a baby is born, they have a predisposition to recognize faces, for example, and they know that they should go for the breast. Okay, so they, they have rudimentary algorithms also. Um, you know, a question concerning the algorithms for animals is how, how do these, where do they come from? And how do these algorithms present a problem for what I will call fundamentalist Darwinian evolutionists? Yeah, and that, that's a great question. And that's one of the themes that uh, I, I talk about in the book, um, because it does present a problem. It's a conundrum about where, where, does, where does the information come from? There's a number of different aspects of these algorithms. One is, in, one, in some uh, cases, the, um, for example, the navigation and migration information, is, as you indicate, is basically pre-programmed. So, for example, a, a number of animals are born actually knowing what direction to migrate what, uh, and the destination. Where, where are they trying to, to migrate to? That information is somehow embedded either within the genome or in, in some way in the animal when, when they're born. So that's one aspect of these algorithms and the information. The other aspect is, again, um, these are, in many cases, these are complex systems and the navigation uh, information involves, in some cases, sophisticated mathematics. Again, you're computing uh, geometric paths that have to be computed through trigonometry and other mathematical techniques. So again, that, th these are algorithms that are somehow embedded in these animals and uh, uh, 
least to date, we really don't have very good indication of how they do that. There has been some research. People are trying to, to, to understand this better. There's some indication about some um, sort of techniques that are embedded into the brains uh, of some animals. But so far, the research really hasn't nailed this down as about how animals are actually doing all of, uh, performing all these algorithms. You know, one of the examples that you talked about, which uh, is the migration of the monarch butterfly, how it takes numerous generations, I forget how many, in order for them to get from point A to point B. So they, Yeah, it takes three generations. Three generations. So they fly to some places, the, the butterflies have babies that grow up that fly the second route, and those those butterflies die, they have kids, and they complete the route. And that is ah, that, that that is just astonishing to me that they can have this predisposition to seek the same goal. Yeah, and that right, and that is that is one of the things that's a big mystery about it. The other uh, mystery, if some people recognize, again, I think is maybe a little bit underappreciated, is the fact, like like the monarch butterfly, uh, honeybees, ants. In many cases, these insects, they have really tiny brains. For example, honeybees' brains have less than one million neurons compared to humans and other primates that have billions and billions of neurons. These algorithms are programmed into these extremely tiny brains, which is a good indication that the term that's used um, for a lot of these kinds of behaviors in terms of uh, neuroscience is called a neural network. So in other words, how the, how the neurons are actually arranged in the brain. It's a, again, it's an indication that there's a lot of sophistication about how these neural networks in such tiny brains are designed and they must be really efficiently designed to be uh, programmed into such small brains. Yeah, and the question is, is whether this can be explained by fundamentalist Darwinian evolution, which I think you... You question. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think there's a, a good indication that these are engineering and uh, designed. And the fact that it's very difficult to explain how such complex mechanisms and algorithms come about through uh, basically a random process of sort of trial and error. Uh, you know, how, how can such a complex integrated system uh, evolve through basically a trial and error process. How do ants find the closest distance from the Milky Way bar you dropped on the sidewalk back to their anthill? How do bees know how to build their hives? Or termites, uh, how to build their homes that control temperature? The answer is algorithms. Algorithms that these insects are born with algorithms that are step-by-step procedures for doing something. And remarkably, insects, again, are born pre-programmed to follow these algorithms. Okay, Aaron, what, what is the primary aspect of insect social behavior that makes it so complex? Well, the thing that's interesting about insects um, is that many of them have um, social behavior where that involves a significant numbers of the animals living in colonies. And 
these colonies are not just a case of just simply um, a number of animals just simply living together, sharing a nest, etc. The, the colonies themselves are actually quite complex. And as time has gone on and scientists investigate these uh, more in more detail, they're finding more and more uh, information about how just how complex these colonies are. Some of them, the ones that are the sort of the largest colonies, uh, they, uh, scientists define these as being eusocial. Um, and that involves a number of things where, for example, there's a division of labor. You have... Um, okay, eusocial. You're, you're about to define that. It means this division of labor? Right. Uh, right. That's one of the primary indications of what represents... Uh, a colony of insects that would be eusocial. So the, there's a division of labor where some some of the ants might be responsible for foraging, some of them uh, for maintenance of the nest, some of them for tending to the queen, uh, some of them for um, tending to or feeding uh, the, the young, etc. So there's there's that aspect. The other aspect of these these types of social uh, constructs is the re, um, reproduction, how reproduction occurs. So, uh, in in a, in a number of them, in most cases, there's a single queen only that reproduces. Sometimes they have uh, multiple queens. But basically, what uh, is going on with this division of labor is there's actually different casts. That's a term that's C A S T E S, where we're where you're dividing up the, the group amongst specific uh, subgroups of animals. And these are the subgroups then are the responsibility of doing these different tasks in the colony. And again, when it comes to reproduction, the queen would be the one primarily responsible for producing the offspring. But then there's another cast of males that's responsible for um, uh, inseminating the queen for reproduction. So there's a, there's a lot of division of responsibilities, and that whole aspect of it becomes quite complex in these larger groups that we call eusocial. So in eusocial swarms, not all insects are created equal. <laughs> they they can never have uh, they can never obtain equality in any way. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and there's some, and we'll talk about this a little bit later as well, but one of the casts, for example, typically does not even reproduce at all in, in these um, social colonies. In your book, you talk about a superorganism. What, what is a superorganism? So that, that's a term that um, uh, some of the scientists came up with to talk about these more, most advanced eusocial organizations. In other words, these are the largest ones. And the reason they call them a, a, a superorganism is because the attributes of the colony has a lot of analog, analogy with an organism. So in other words, what they're saying is, if you think of an organism, we have a number of different organs within our body, the heart, the lungs, brain, skin, et cetera, doing different functions within the, within the body. And so what they're saying is in, the, in these 
in these superorganisms uh, colonies, again, they're made up of thousands or even in some cases millions of individuals, different groups of animals within that colony are doing different functions. And they tend, so what they're saying is you can tend to think of that as sort of a, the equivalent of an organism. Um, it's just that it's made up of a, of a bunch of different individual animals. Hmm. And again, some of these, some of these uh, superorganisms, particularly ants, termites, they can be uh, comprised of millions of individuals. And some of the research uh, into these, um, uh, as an example, in the Amazon rainforest, uh, these types of colonies actually make up a huge portion of the biomass, which is incredible when you think about it, about the fact that these animals, types of animals and their colonies have really become kind of a dominant form of life in these regions. You know, it, it, it occurred to me that in a way, our functioning part of our bodies are kind of like swarms that don't move. We, we have a bunch of cells, for example, in our lung. Everything, as I understand from biology, starts out as stem cells, and then they become different types of, of cells. But it seems that in our lung, for example, we have a bunch of cells, and they're not insects, but they're, they're little individual agents that act together towards a greater good. Uh, so... We're, I guess we're an organism, and the idea insect swarms are a superorganism where these individual agents are, are, are crawling around and not directly connected to each other. You, you mentioned different castes, for example, in the swarm colony. Other than that, what role do algorithms play in insect social colonies? Well, and you just sort of uh, touched on that. The, the problem here is the fact that these are separate individuals. When we think of a single organism, there's, there is um, sort of overall control uh, and coordination amongst the different organs, if you will, within an, uh, an animal. So that's all uh, embedded within the animal and controlled within the animal. Uh-huh. In the case of these colonies, these are actually separate animals. They are all individual, completely separate autonomous animals. Then the question arises, okay, how is the behavior of all these individuals controlled? And the first answer is there is no overarching overall control. In other words, there's not some higher level mechanism that controls the behavior of the individuals within the colony that we know of. So that means that the behaviors of the individuals somehow is programmed into each individual such that the, these algorithms that must reside within the individual ant or termite, for example, must be programmed such that they know what task they're supposed to be doing at any given time. That in and itself is, must be extremely complex. And we know that there's a lot of information that actually is being used and exchanged for these animals to make these decisions. So one of, one of the ways that they do this is that they use pheromones, basically chemicals, 
that are exchanged between the individual animals and these chemicals or pheromones are actually used as an indication, okay, something is going on in the environment or something is going on amongst this other group of individuals in the colony. Therefore, I must be doing this task, for example, foraging, tending to the queen, et cetera. And one of the things that's been found is that there are some ant species that use as many as 30 or 40 different pheromone or chemical compounds that are exchanged amongst the colony. And <laughs> that also is just in and of itself is a highly complex mechanism <clears throat> because you have to have the, the mechanism within the animal to actually just simply detect the presence of this chemical compound. And then once you detect it, that information is then used to govern the behavior. So there's a lot going on in these colonies that's controlling their overall behavior as a group. Because again, there's a goal here that the behavior of the entire group must be governed to, act, to benefit the overall life of the colony. I found this fascinating in your book, all of these different pheromones. So you have one pheromone, for example, that tells the ant how to get home. Uh, you have another, I mentioned in the beginning about the, the shortest distance between the Milky Way bar and the ant hill. And the way that's accomplished, as I understand, is that the ants lay down pheromone and that the ants are marching back and forth with little pieces of your Milky Way bar to the, to the ant hill and uh, they follow a pheromone path. In fact, I have had fun. If you ever see one of these ant uh, trails, you know, these they, there's a little line of ants going back and forth. If you dampen your fingers and you break that trail, the ants go up to where you've broken the trail and they get confused. They don't know what to do. They don't know where, what path to follow. Now, eventually they break on through to the other side and they rediscover the path going back and forth. But just by interrupting that with wetting your fingers and interrupting that path, uh, you have ruined their day. They don't know how to get back and forth. And of course, I would advise if anybody did this, wash your hands after you're done because you got ant pheromone on them. Yeah, that's and that's that's exactly right. And that's that and that but that's also an illustration of the in this case ants. There is a lot of programming going on. In other words, these algorithms are programmed. But the other interesting part of that is that they are actually able to adapt in real time. So if not, in other words, like in the example you cited, you broke the path. They still figure out a way to adapt. And the same they thing is do. true for other parts of their behaviors where if something's going on in the environment, like part of the nest, for example, gets destroyed, you'll see the, the ants immediately stop what they're doing and go repair the nest. So th there, there's a lot of adaptability in the way they behave, which again means these algorithms are highly adaptive and programmed to account for these different contingencies. Yeah. You know, there's lots of engineering applications where we have learned from Swarm. One is called the ant colony optimization. It is literally an optimization algorithm that's based on Swarm. I have, an, I have a friend, Russ Eberhardt, who with a colleague named Kennedy had particle swarm, which was based on social insect swarms that also performed optimization. 
And I tell you, one of the most chilling things I think that we have to face today is swarms of drones, where these drones come along in a swarm, and it's just like the anthill you mentioned. You kick it over, and you come back in a week, and it's rebuilt. It's the same thing with these drone swarms of, say, thousands of different drones, and they attack, and if, if you get through, they can accomplish their mission. And uh, this is this has been chilling. I think that there's ways to counteract those military swarms. But again, these are things that we are learning learning from swarm technology and the techniques that you're talking about that we can apply to everyday applications in engineering. We're learning from the swarms. Yeah, and and then and a related aspect of that um, is artificial intelligence because obviously drones and a lot of other um, devices that are being developed today involve artificial intelligence, right? So well, one of the things that they're learning about it is the fact that it's much more complex to program these drones even to just mimic what animals do because the behaviors are actually way more complex than people thought. And that, and, But then the implication of that is these, the, the artificial intelligence, the computer programs, do end up having to be really complex and sophisticated, which again is a further indication of how sophisticated the algorithms are in these animals. Yes, yes. And there is a field of uh, artificial intelligence called swarm intelligence that specifically investigates the application of social insect swarms to engineering, what can we learn out of insect social um, behavior? And right. um, it's really a fascinating field. You know, we still get back to where does this come from? What What are some of the challenges for naturalism in explaining this behavior, this complex behavior we see in social insect colonies? So, yeah, there's a number of challenges, I believe, for um, Darwinian evolution in explaining this. The, the complex algorithms is one part of it. Again, uh, as we've mentioned before, if you have a, a complex algorithm, and if we think of it in terms of, for example, a computer program that is, is large, has a number of lines of code that we, that we would program, it's, again, trying to develop such a system that works properly through a simple trial and error process, in other words, random mutations and and natural selection, it's very difficult to see how that kind of a process could result in such a, a highly complex uh, functional system. The other aspect of this that's a little bit sort of a side issue in terms of what I've examined uh, in terms of the, uh, the book and, and the social behaviors is this notion of altruism where, uh, as I mentioned before, there are some casts in these um, large social colonies, particularly insects, that don't reproduce, which, okay, you would say, well, okay, so what? But the, the, the problem that presents for uh, regular Darwinian evolution is that, for example, under the Richard Dawkins theory of the selfish gene, mm -hmm. if an animal doesn't recruit, reproduce at all, how does it advance the progeny and, and contribute to the next generation? Why would such an animal even exist? 
but they do exist in these large social colonies. So that has presented a problem. And actually, Darwin even recognized this in his time. Uh, he wrote about it where this kind of phenomena with particularly the social insects presented a problem for his theory that the fact that these types of uh, these casts actually exist in these colonies where they don't even reproduce at all. He wrestled with that. He did not have an explanation. More recently, evolutionary biologists have come up with a theory. They, they call it inclusive fitness, which basically means that uh, when you examine the group as a whole, uh, the group or species or population in this case in a colony benefits from the fact that some subgroups do not reproduce, but they're contributing to the overall existence of the colony and propagating the colony over time by doing certain roles and tasks within the colony, but actually not reproducing. And they go through a really it's a complex mathematical calculation to show that, OK, you're sharing your genes or at least a portion of your genome with the other animals in the colony. Therefore, in an indirect way, you are benefiting, even though that group of animals is not actually reproducing. Mm -hmm. It's a controversial theory. Most many evolution advocates believe that that's a reasonable explanation. Others have contested that, and there's a lot of uh, discussion in the literature uh, that's gone back and forth about this, about whether that theory is actually adequate or not. That issue doesn't really impinge directly on what my assertions are about these issues uh, in terms of social insect colonies and the origin of these behaviors. That is a related issue, but more fundamental issue, again, is where does the information come from that programs these complex algorithms and controls the behaviors of all these individuals in, in a colony? Uh, and again, the, uh, another aspect of this that there actually has been quite a bit of research done that's in the literature is examining the, the genomes of a number of these insects and uh, bees, ants, termites, et cetera. And what they have found is that the, the species that engage in these social, the larger social colonies, the, again, the superorganism type of colonies, the, the genomes indicate that there's actually a large number of either novel or genes that have been modified in these animals. And that, that they range from hundreds, in some cases, thousands of genes, again, that are either completely novel genes that have no common ancestry in, in the um, related animals previous, or they're modified in some way. I think I've heard those called orphan genes. Is that right? Yeah, they're, yeah that's the term they use. They're called orphan genes. They have no ancestry. Right. So, again, the question is, does regular Darwinian evolution provide a good explanation for that? And the answer really is no. That's one of the problems that's been a challenge for uh, Darwinian evolution is that uh, that really is, again, 
random mutation, natural selection. How do you explain, for example, hundreds of these novel genes all of a sudden appearing in a population or species? Mm-hmm. Darwinian evolution really can't explain that. Whereas from a more of a design perspective, that's a, a little bit better, but I think much better explanation that this could be a result of design. Naturalism has a rough time explaining some of the incredible properties of the world in which we live. In biology, irreducible complexity is an example. How do we explain complexity that fails when a single component of a complex biological system is removed? It's kind of like the game of Jenga, where removal of any single block in the stack sends the whole stack of blocks just crashing down. Similarly, how do, we, how do these interdependent components of biology that we see and observe every day combine themselves into a single complex system, an irreducibly complex system? There are other biological features that naturalists have a difficult time with. Uh, they have a difficult time explaining them. Look, to write an algorithm, there has to be a foundation of information on which to build. What is the source of that information in animal algorithms? So that that's the sort of fundamental question about uh, this particular topic. There's a general problem with evolutionary theory in trying to explain the origin of information. As we know, there's a lot of information that goes into, for example, building and developing an indiv- individual animal or other type of organism. So um, the org- the information, for example, includes how to build the how do you build the body, how do you how do you construct the the brain of an animal, things like that. So there there's a lot of information involved in all of that, and there's been a lot of research that's gone into those kinds of aspects of animal development. the The aspect that I'm addressing more specifically has to do with these the behaviors that are the subject of, of the book. And this particular aspect actually has, I believe, a little bit more of a challenge uh, than maybe the physical development of an organism. Because as you indicate, what we're talking about here are actually algorithms that control the behavior. And as we talked about in the previous podcast, Many of these algorithms are quite sophisticated and obviously involve a lot of information that is embedded within the animal in some way and actually is is used by the animal in controlling these behaviors. So again, the question is, where does this information come from? The process of standard Darwinian evolution again, is one of random variation, mutations, and natural selection. But there's been a lot of work done that show that that, in fact, is an inadequate explanation for um, the origin of this kind of information. There's a a concept called this no free lunch theorem that um, William Dembski has has talked about and written about quite a bit. And his uh, research uh, An analysis has shown how it, it's really difficult 
or near impossible to generate new information through these purely random kinds of processes. A lot of uh, good information and analysis of that topic is contained in a book called Evolutionary Informatics. Yeah, which is a great which is a great book. Yes, <laughs> I agree. And uh, since you were one of the co-authors of that book, uh, I'd ask you to maybe explain that a little bit more. Well, let me talk about no free lunch. Uh, there, there, there was an astonishing paper published in 1997 by Warburton McCready, and it was published in the IEEE Transactions on Evolutionary Programming. And Warburton McCready kind of ah, they, they 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 toppled a big area in, in design. Uh, it used to be, well, if you think about it, design itself is an iterative process. I like to use things like um, WD-40. Why do they call it WD-40? It's called WD-40 because it took 40 tries for the industrial chemist to come up with the final solution. Same thing with Formula 409. Formula 409 took 409 experiments before they, they got it right. So uh, it's, um, it's, it, it, d- design is search. And you have to bring expertise into the search process, into the design process. If the people doing WD-40, I think the guy's name was Larson, if he hadn't been an industrial chemist and they had given this problem to somebody with no domain expertise, like, uh, I don't know, a high school chemistry student, we would be using not WD-40, but WD-1,263,000. It's just that domain expertise is incredibly important in design. Anyway, getting back to Walbert McCready's original paper in 1997. Uh, They called it the no free lunch. They weren't the inventors of it, but they were certainly the popularizers of it. But they came up with this idea that if you have no domain expertise, if you don't know what you're talking about, that one technique of, of searching, of doing the design is as good as any other. This is, this is just, this is just astonishing. And this means that if you do just random search, uh, random search is blind search where you know nothing. Eh, that's as good as any other search on average. There's a movie called UHF <laughs> that starred Weird Al Yankovic. He was he was the only star of it. And there's this one short scene where a blind man. We know he's blind because he's sitting on a uh, on a park bench with glasses, dark glasses, and a cane, and he has a Rubik's cube, and there's a sighted guy next to him, and, and the blind guy gives a little twist to the Rubik's cube and shows it to the other guy, and he says, is this it? And the sighted guy looks at it, and he says, nope, and then the blind guy gives it another twist, and he looks at it, and the sighted guy looks at it, and he says, is this it? And the guy says, nope, that is a that is an example of blind search, and the fact that they used a blind man to do it is very appropriate. And in order to get a result, in order to get a design, you can't use blind search. It just takes too long. That's the reason that the blind guy is never, ever going to solve that Rubik's Cube by just saying, is this it? No. Is this it? No. He has to have some sort of domain expertise to figure out what that Rubik's Cube is going to do. And so... In every design that we see, and that includes insect algorithms and, and other things, there has to be an infusion of a designer with domain expertise in order to guide the process. Even in the Darwinian example, where you have the repeated steps of uh, survival of the fittest, 
repopulation and mutation over and over and over again. Uh, Think of the survival of the fittest. What determines who is fit and who is not? And that has to come even in in an evolutionary sort of way of that has to come from an expert. There is a field in electrical engineering called evolutionary programming, and people use evolutionary algorithms to do this. But the way they do it is they put a lot of domain expertise into figuring out what the fitness is in order to guide the solution uh, teleologically to the final, the final result. And so when we see incredible designs that uh, Eric Castle is talking about in insect swarms, and just in general, in animal algorithms, we have to address the question, where did it come from? It can't have just originated by random chance. You can't have, is this it? No. Is this it? No. Is this a good social algorithm, social uh, swarm algorithm? No, you can't do that. You have to have domain expertise. And this is the evidence for design. And both Eric and I are have degrees in electrical engineering. We have designed stuff, and we know design when we see it. And uh, you have to have that domain expertise in order to have sophisticated design. So, Eric, how'd I do? That was a great explanation. I appreciate that. And I really like your analogy of the, the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> that, that's a really good analogy. I, I do use that little clip in some of the talks that I get. You know, the guy is saying, is this it? No. Is this it? No. And the guy's going to be there forever. <laughs> so you mentioned that many of these algorithms that you're talking about in terms of social insects and animals in general, they're pretty complex and they're analogous to computer software programs. Imagine writing a computer software program to do something. You type something randomly on the keyboard, you hit run, and when you hit run, you ask, is this it? No, this isn't the algorithm. So you type something else, which is random, and then you hit you hit the key and you say, is this it? No, it isn't. It'd take you one heck of a long time to come up with the algorithm to do anything using that process, using no domain expertise. You have to know what you're doing. You have to figure out your expertise and you have to incorporate that expertise, that information into the uh, the algorithm. So, so what do you think about all this, uh, Eric, uh, in terms of animal algorithms? I guess I guess you're saying it applies there too. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's directly analogous. And so there's actually, I, I think there's actually two problems. Uh, one is the development of the, uh, of the algorithm, as you indicate, just trying to develop an algorithm or a similar computer software program in such a manner. Um, for those of us that have written computer programs, I mean, it seems almost impossible that you could ever even do that, particularly for something that's highly complex. But the other aspect of it uh, that I think gets overlooked is the fact that even if, if even if you actually are able and somehow to start off with a functioning algorithm or program, if you have all of these random um, variations or mutations going on in, in the genome, well, almost always, whenever you have a a mutation, it's going to degrade the algorithm. It's not going to provide uh, improved functionality or or some new functionality. And almost all, it's almost inevitable that it actually degrades the 
the, the algorithm. And that's actually what has been found when scientists research um, mutations in, in genetics is that for the most part, these mutations actually degrade the, in some cases, it's proteins or whatever the, the gene might, um, uh, functionality might be. It's more degradatory than, than helping. And so that is really a major problem for, for things like these algorithms that control behaviors because, <clears throat> let's just take an example. In the case of, um, again, these large social colonies of insects <clears throat> that involve a, a number of algorithms and a number of different aspects of behavior, if you have some random mutations going on and it, the, the algorithm gets changed, and in other words, the behaviors get changed, well, it's much more likely than not that such a change is going to be degradatory to the to the organism to the to the colony because the the animals would be engaging in behaviors that are either the wrong behaviors or or the behaviors at the wrong time in other words let's just take one case something changed about um when the animals uh, let's say honeybees go out to forage for food well if something changes in that algorithm and these and the honeybees fail to go forwards for the food, the colony is going to die. And so that's why I'm saying, and in, in, in more often than not, some kind of a process where you're having these random mutations and the algorithm ends up changing in some way, much more often than not, that's going to be detrimental to the colony. Again, that's that's something that's hard to square with a process that involves some random process um, and selection and presuming that that's going to result in optimization. Well, in some cases, maybe it, there's certain aspects of it that might do that, where if there's some kind of a change in the algorithm or the behavior that's detrimental, that, you know, maybe in some cases that gets selected out. But for the most part, they're not beneficial, and it's hard to see how such a process can actually result in um, optimization of these behaviors or algorithms. We see, for example, the, the, the lofting of the importance of, of mutation in the process of Darwinian evolution. Uh, but you do not see pregnant mothers lining up at the doctors and saying, will you please mutate my baby? <laughs> that, is, that is not something which is going to happen. Uh, so, you know, you have, to, you have to bring it down to practical application. Also, what you're talking about is a topic which is covered, I believe, in Michael Behe's new book, which is Darwin Devolves which is that we're not getting better and better, we're getting worse. And this was a premise which was put forward by John Sanford earlier in his book, Genetic Entropy, which says that the genome is getting more and more random. And we see more inheritable diseases today and inheritable uh, conditions today than we ever have because we're keeping on mutating and, and we're devolving, just exactly like you're saying, Eric. Yeah, and that's right. That's one of the... To me, one of the major um, takeaways from Behe's research where it's, he's showing that 
even in some cases where there's there are genetic changes going on or mutations, and in some cases they might be beneficial to a, an organism in, in the short term. In fact, what the the, the benefit comes from a, a gene that that's broken. It actually it's a broken gene that in some ways they may be beneficial result in something beneficial to the to the animal, but really it's 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 because the gene broke, not because it in, actually improved the the gene or in, in, improved the overall genome in some way or, or uh, developed some new new characteristic. That's that's not what goes on for the most part. Okay, Let, let's talk about the um, another aspect of animal algorithms, and that's that's a concept named convergence. I'm familiar with Simon Conway Morris's pioneering work in the concept of convergence in the history of animal development. Talk, talk about convergence as it applies to animal algorithms. So, yeah, convergence is this term that um, evolutionary theorists apply to characteristics that appear in animals that are actually unrelated. In other words, there's no common ancestry. So it could be some physical characteristic, or in cases what I'm talking about are largely behaviors that appear in animals that have no direct ancestry relationship. And so it present, that does present a problem for Darwinian evolution, being that how does such a characteristic appear um, in these different groups of species that are not related in any way? So there's a problem of, okay, if it's a low probability event of these genetic changes occurring in the first place, what's the likelihood of them happening in completely unrelated populations or species? So that's been a problem for evolutionary theory. And one of the explanations that's been used in some cases, and it does make some sense, is in, in this part of evolutionary theory called evo-devo, where a good example might be certain physical characteristics, like, for example, bird wing design. We know that there is, based on research that was done in developing airplanes, we know there's a lot of constraints in how you construct a wing. So that actually constrains how, that, how those wings could be designed in birds. So the idea then is that in the process of evolution, because of these constraints, when you have birds developing wings with certain characteristics, and these bird populations or species are completely unrelated, well, it may be because there are a lot of there's these constraints, these physical constraints in how the design can even occur in the first place or be functional. So that's somewhat of a plausible explanation that you could apply to things like that. The same idea would apply to, for example, fish fins. Mm -hmm. That does actually not work for many of the things that I've addressed in the book. For example, these navigation systems or sensors that animals employ, the different kinds of compass, compasses, for example, and other kinds of navigation sensors, there really aren't the same kind of um, physical design constraints or reasons why uh, an animal would develop a certain kind of 
navigation sensor. Right. It's it, that analogy just doesn't work. For example, with wing uh, bird wings, that means that these de these designs that are used for navigation, for example, are really kind of contingent. They're not deterministic. There's nothing driving a certain kind of design or the, even the use of a certain sensor. And as we've seen, animals employ a number of different kinds of sensors in different ways. And some animals use one sensor, two sensors, three sensors, and other animals use others. But there's a lot of commonality that appear in animals, again, that are completely unrelated, no common ancestry, but they're using similar kinds of navigation sensors and systems. So the, again, that begs the question, where does that come from? What, why would that even be the case? My thesis is that's a, it's a more plausible explanation that there's common design going on yeah. rather than some sort of evolutionary explanation based on this notion of convergence. Same thing applies to, for example, the social behavior where um, the, the, big, the biggest groups of animals that in, uh, insects that engage in these social colonies are ants, bees, and termites. In many cases, the behaviors of these animals in these colonies are very similar. They're not identical, but there's a lot of commonality in these behaviors. And again, they appear in groups of animals that are completely unrelated, no common ancestry. So how does that occur through an evolutionary process that's difficult to explain, much easier to explain through a common design? Well, this is a problem which is amplified by Simon Conway Morris's work. Now, you're talking about the existence of similar behavior in different species like ants and bees and termites. Uh, Simon Conway Morris was looking at the similarity that happens when you have these geographically separated animals. There might be, I don't remember the specifics, but there might be an animal in uh, in South America and another one in Japan who have never had the chance of biologically interacting and they have the same sort of uh, same sort of DNA, same sort of attributes, even though they are geographically separated and and couldn't have been in the same evolutionary chain, if you will. Right. So yeah, this this enforces that. This is very this is very interesting. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so, something interesting in this, you know, naturalists uh, they contend that evolution has no goal. That evolution, you're always looking at your toes. Evolution is always looking at your toes, wherein. I, I think um, it's more reasonable to assume that there is a teleology, that is, that there's a goal which is being pursued. Now, you address this in your book, so let's talk about uh, teleology as related to animal algorithms. Yes, so this is a um, sort of a more of a philosophical issue, uh, and maybe a higher level issue that arises, particularly with many of the aspects of behaviors that uh, that I've been addressing. If you go back into the history of an, um, scientists looking at an, uh, the world as we see it, particularly organisms and animals, um, Aristotle had a, had a concept that involved a certain version of teleology. 
Um, so that was actually a kind of a dominant view for quite a long time until closer to the period of um, Darwin and the development of evolutionary theory. And subsequent to that, many of the defenders of the evolutionary view basically assert that the concept of teleology or purpose really shouldn't be part of science and doesn't play a role in, ex in explaining this. I'm, I'm thinking of Richard Dawkins, Michael Ruse, Jerry Coyne, uh, people like that. that that's the, the strong point of view that they have, that basically you can't infer purpose or teleology and aspects of, in this case, animal behavior. I use a term in the, the book that I refer to the people that take that point of view, they have kind of a teleophobia, meaning that they have an aversion to the admitting that there's an existence of design or a final cause in nature, which again kind of gets back to Aristotle's original theory. But I think when you examine the behaviors that are described in, in the book, in almost every case you can find that there's a lot of evidence for purpose or goals. So just to take one aspect of this as an example, again, in these social colonies, when you look at the, particularly the ones that are considered superorganisms, you have a higher level functionality of the colony. There's something that's determining some higher level functionality that then drives all of the individual behaviors that the, in this case, insects engage in. So something is setting some higher level goal or purpose and all of the functions that go on within the colony are supporting that higher level goal or purpose. And there's plenty of evidence to say that that's the case and the same thing could be said about many of the other kinds of behaviors that I talk about. That kind of higher level goal or purpose fits more within a, a, a design point of view than it does, again, with the Darwinian view now where the Darwinian evolutionists are saying, you can't even admit that that's a case. You, you can't even uh, account, try to account for the fact that there might be some higher level purpose to these behaviors because it's just totally uh, contrary to Darwinian evolution. So that's kind of the fundamental problem that's being dealt with. You know, in terms of teleology, when I was learning to drive, the first thing my dad told me, he says, don't look where you're at. Don't look over the hood. Look at where you're going. And that's the only way to drive. I think that most new drivers are told that. I, Yogi Berra has a, has a great saying. He says, if you don't know where you are going, you will never get there. So uh, this this is the this this is the problem with uh, uh, teleology and and having a goal uh, being defined as opposed to just looking at at your toes all the time. And the and the other thing uh, just to pick up on that that um, is interesting to me as an engineer from an engineering perspective when you look again at many of the the behaviors and systems that we we've talked about there's significant evidence of engineering. And when you do engineering, you're, you, you definitely have goals and purposes for how you're designing something. 
Yes. Um, whether it be some physical mechanism or behavior, there's there's a, 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 a construct there that the engineer has in mind. Okay, this is the purpose. This is the function that I want to design this thing to do. So that's again evidence that there's there is some higher level purpose involved in how these systems or behaviors are designed. Thanks, Eric. You know, this has been a, a great and wonderful chat. I've really enjoyed this time with you. Let me let me summarize the points, I think, as, as you have made them. Uh, the source of the algorithms in animals requires an explanation. Where does this come from? It can't be from a blind search. Is this it? No. Is this it? No. Can't come from that. Where did the information for all of these algorithms come from? And why is there convergence? Why do we see similar aspects among different species and among geographically separated species that, um, why, why, why do we see such commonality there if there is no teleological aspect of their design? These and other things and fascinating things are addressed in Eric Castle's new book, Animal Algorithms, published by Discovery Press. I have read it, I endorse it, and it's fun and an informative read, so please get, get a copy if this, if this sort of stuff interests you. So until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute. 